Hey, how's it going? Uh, welcome to the podcast. And this is our 20th episode. And also, probably the first time since 2020 that we've recorded during the daytime. So I can see Nicholas in uh, this nice, bright sunlight here. Um, it's pretty, pretty fun. <laughs> yeah, it seems like we're all, yeah, we usually end up recording the podcast in the middle of the night. Uh, maybe <laughs> remember there was that one, that one episode where there was all the honking from the um, uh, fans driving home after the uh, Oilers playoffs. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know why we never end up recording during the day. But uh, yeah, maybe it's an interesting metaphor for something. Yeah, maybe uh, <laughs> someone can uh, can parse that out, right? The night versus day recording. Uh, what does that mean? <laughs> yeah, we're... Shrouded in secrets. Yeah, I mean. exactly. We were wearing dark, uh, dark cloaks over our heads right now. <laughs> yeah, really uh, leaning into it. Yeah. So the theme of this episode is how um, different, like institutional branches uh, of our governance, try to control or eliminate threats to their power. So uh, we're talking about municipal government. Uh, local media, and of course the police. So basically three things that we try to focus on a lot um, in this show. Uh, later in the episode, we're going to be talking about the upcoming city budget discussions and how the municipal government, I guess, approaches public engagement in a way that really just tries to yeah control or eliminate um, challenges or, th- or threats to their power. Uh, we're also going to be talking about how the local media uh, covers our current municipal government and how the how their framing ends up shaping the approach to uh, government. And we're going to be actually starting off with the police because uh, Omar got to do a really great interview with uh, Taylor McNally, um, someone that we've wanted to talk to for a long time. It's definitely been a long time um, that I've wanted to have this conversation. I think it's a necessary one. Taylor is a community organizer in Calgary um, who's been the target of just relentless attacks um, from the police over the last couple of years. She's faced criminal charges several times related to protesting police violence, um, specifically a protest that happened after the um, after the death of Dahlia Kafi, what happened with Dahlia Kafi was a situation where she was found to be in breach of a curfew that was put on to her, um, a court-mandated curfew. So during the arrest process, uh, there was video released after she was brutally thrown to the ground by the police officer. So picked up while she was handcuffed um, off of the ground and just slammed onto a concrete floor um, and, you know, sustained pretty serious injuries. And um, after that, in the complaints process, um, was definitely, I I don't know what exactly happened in that situation, but I'm almost sure that... um, Well, yeah, so the incident uh, happened in um, December 2017, and uh, the officer... Alex Dunn, um, who assaulted uh, Dahlia, wasn't charged until uh, May 2019, then he was found guilty in 2020, and then uh, he was just handed a 
um, a one-month sentence, which uh, means he would serve no time in jail, um, but it would uh, just be um, house arrest followed by house arrest with a curfew. And the case was presided over by a white judge, of course, and uh, the judge said there is no evidence that race is a factor in the actual assault. So you can just like imagine what uh, Dahlia went through throughout this whole situation, you know, being basically gaslit by uh, those in power here. Um, and then she uh, died of an overdose just uh, two days before the sentencing was announced. So the situation with Dahlia was what Taylor was protesting at the Calgary courthouse when she herself was thrown down and arrested by Calgary police um, in uh, an assault that she was later given criminal charges for. Um, so these criminal charges are on top of other incidents like an assault in Red Deer when after um, Black Lives Matter protests in 2020 erupted, Taylor and other organizers wanted to travel across Alberta to have important conversations about race and racism. And they received constant threats from far-right groups. And when they arrived in Red Deer, they were assaulted. Taylor was um, in a situation where she was being filmed and after knocking down a camera, um, was charged with assault against the person who was filming her. Um, so this is... Um, these are all things that we're going to talk about later, and Taylor is going to give her own um, story in and kind of explain um, what happened. Yeah, it's uh, everything that she went through. When you compare that with uh, a situation here in Edmonton with Duncan Kinney, you know, another another friend of the show. Not that these are like equal or uh, to lump them together, um, but there's some really interesting interesting context that becomes uh, important later in the interview um, when it comes to how uh, that situation has been covered by local media um, versus how um, Taylor's uh, experiences have been um, covered by local media. So Omar, um, I think you know a little bit more about this. Do you want to just give a little, a little bit of a brief recap of the uh, situation with Duncan before we play the interview? So uh, Duncan Kinney is a local independent journalist with the Progress Report, and he was charged with a few um, vandalism charges stemming from a spray paint of a uh, Nazi general or some kind of military figure in Ukraine that was um, given a statue. And I'm not going to say any more about that. Uh, just some useful context for things that are going to be discussed later in the interview. If it's okay with you, we can just start with introductions. Um, so for any listeners who may not know the work that you do or who you are, can you just give us a little rundown of who you are and maybe some of your past history in Alberta? My name is Taylor McNally. I um, live in Calgary, Alberta. I've been in Calgary for 16 years, I think. Uh, yeah, mom, community organizer. I have a business doing branding and marketing. That is what pays the bills. Um, I have an organization, Inclusive Canada. I also do 
work with a collective called Wells Down Collective um, that is newly, the name is newly formed, but the work is um, work that has been ongoing for many years. And um, yeah, you know, my history in Calgary and Alberta, you know, what I've been doing um, has not always been so-called activism work. Um, I was very much involved in the music, arts and entertainment industry for very many years. Um, and in 2020, when um, the global protests for Black Lives Matter sparked over the murder of George Floyd, um, I decided I would kind of use my platforms for something else um, since I had a following, since I have made connections, all these things. And, you know, naive me was like, yeah, all these people, these are great people that I know and Black Lives Matter and they want to, you know, they're going to want to make change. And then I very quickly realized that that was not the case um, and that this fight is much harder um obviously, then I think any of us truly know, especially if you are somebody who, you know, grew up in predominantly white spaces in Alberta and kind of out here floating around on your own. And until 2020, not necessarily realizing that this is like a collective experience that Black people are feeling and facing and experiencing. Um, and so, yeah, very quickly shifted my focus. And um, it seems like this is just where I will be for the unforeseeable future doing this work. And um, that's necessary. Yeah. I guess just to, to zoom in a bit on um, the work that you do, the um, I think you said the Wells Down um, organization. And I know that you are also very active on social media when it comes to mutual aid. Um, what is your approach to the work that you do and how does it take shape in the world in Calgary on the streets um, every week, basically? Yeah, I mean, the the focus is a better life for everybody, you know, even within the Black Lives Matter movement. I think I, I mean, even still, a lot of people think that we are only out here fighting for black lives or that what can be gained through dismantling anti-Black oppression and racism um, can only benefit Black people. That is not the case. You know, the I, I forget the quote right now. I wish I had it up or I could remember it. Um, but that, you know, the moment we dismantle, you know, anti-Blackness is the foundation of white supremacy. It, that, like, you cannot have white supremacy without anti-Blackness. That is a reality. And when we are able to uplift those most oppressed and marginalized within our society, automatically everybody benefits from that. Um, you know, and um, so <laughs> this work is just based on wanting a better life for everybody, um, even even though this society is literally built for white people, capitalism and white supremacy is not benefiting anybody. Um, that's the reality. Capitalism isn't benefiting anybody. Even if you think you are doing well and you're you know you're out here living your life, you're not. <laughs> we could be living so much better, um, and just you know, amplifying the needs and voices of those who are not being heard, those who are not having their basic needs met, um, trying to redistribute um, our resources throughout our communities, whether that's financial or material um, items. And um, 
just trying to unfortunately still educate people. You know, in 2020, it was a lot of heavy focus on educating white people and then realizing, you know, white people don't even want this education. It's not like this education has not been here for hundreds of years. I mean, Angela Davis is still out here doing seminars and y'all ain't listening to her. So, um, you know, it's kind of still providing education, but also shifting the focus on how we are caring for ourselves and our own communities, because that is where our empowerment and the liberation will lie is us um, working together and fighting for ourselves. Some of the problems or um, some of the challenges um, that come with the work that you do. Can you maybe talk about um, what happens when community members decide to maybe take their lives into their own hands or collectively um, really put caring into action in some ways? Um, What are some of the challenges that that come up? Because I know that there has been... Um, I guess, like splits in in groups of people who are doing this kind of work. Um, so maybe for listeners who are interested in taking this for, on for themselves and their own communities, um, what's your experience been and, and maybe what are the, the outcomes um, from situations that arise? Yeah, wow. Um. Yeah, this work is heavy on its own. Um, and being oppressed people ourselves that are really taking on this work, Black and Indigenous folks, um, other racialized people, that, um, you know, we are, we're hurting individuals. We have trauma, we have stresses. Um, not only are we trying to do this work, but we're also experiencing the same oppression that we are trying to fight. Um And so it can get messy at times between, you know, each other, between our communities, you know, inter-communities and um, our relations. And uh, yeah, I I was with Bear Clan for um, nearly three years. This would have been my third Christmas with Bear Clan and um, myself and nearly 40 other people decided to stop working under the Bear Clan name for a variety of reasons. Um, And instead of those reasons being taken seriously, having a discussion about them that we have tried for months and months, it ended up being a huge blowout and actually ended up being like Taylor McNally is a cult leader and has taken over Bear Clan, which is not (laughs) the situation at all. Um, Unfortunately, because I am one of few black women in Alberta, even, I will say, especially Calgary, putting myself on the line like this and doing this work the way I am, uh, it's been really easy for me to become a target for people, to become their punching bag. Uh, Even before doing this work, though, even when I was doing stuff within the music and arts and entertainment industry, same thing. One of very few Black women, um, Black people in general, in that space, doing what I did. And, you know, because of white supremacy, because of racism, it's just a weird relationship of, you know, jealousy or like, how is this person getting um, as far as they are with all of these struggles along the way? And why, you know, it's just, it's just weird perceptions and views on black people and black women, especially. Um, But um, so, yeah, you know, I have become an easy target for black people 
for from the black community, from the indigenous community, especially both communities, even if you are black, you can still hold internalized anti-blackness. And these are things that we need to dismantle. Um, and not only that, but then also from government officials, including police becoming a target with that. So not only am I, you know, fighting the world, struggling with the world um, with white supremacy, anti-blackness and racism. But then I also have to deal with that sometimes with the people I'm working with, because this is not the only, you know, Bear Clan wasn't the first group I tried working with either. You know, there was a group called the Alberta Humanitarian Initiative at one point, which was a bunch of different groups that came together from across Alberta and eventually fell apart as well from a variety of reasons. Um, so dealing with the world, dealing with, you know, my communities, but then also dealing with some very serious shit from government officials like the police. So um, it like comes at all angles all of the time. And I'm sick of being called strong. I'm sick of being called resilient. It's like there's there's like there's just no other choice. Like if I'm not just going to wake up in the morning and keep doing it. The other choice is just not waking up in the morning. And, you know, I have a child. I ain't leaving my child behind, so I better figure it out. That's not resilience. That's just trying to survive. I, I guess... <laughs> a lot to unpack. <laughs> yeah, no, there's, there's a lot. It's definitely a lot. And I, I think it's important for listeners to maybe get a better understanding when you say um, targeting from government officials, specifically the police, you, again, you have a lot of videos, you have a lot of um, like, there's, there's like official uh, cases happening right now, defamation lawsuits, um, criminal charges. Um, but for, for people who aren't aware um what does police harassment look like um on a day-to-day -day basis or in your life what shape has it taken um and what steps have you taken um to protect yourself to um to manage this this targeting so before 2020 i'd never been charged with anything before i was sitting here thinking about that that last night i was like damn it's only been like two years. Okay. Uh, and now two years later, I have um, under my belt 13 criminal charges and two defamation suits. And I'm only going to assume there will be more charges coming in the future because they are monitoring me. They are trying to find what they can, especially with my trial happening, because what makes them look better than when I walk in a trial and I have all these other charges that I look continue looking like a threat? Um and so 2020 was the first charge. Um, I don't know if you remember the situation in Red Deer. Um, there was a few of us who had organized a um, anti-racism community discussion. So um, my organization in 2020, part of what we did was we literally just traveled around Alberta um, because I'm from rural Alberta. So I figured let's let's take the conversation of racism into rural Alberta. Terrible fucking idea. I mean, <laughs> there was some good things that came from it. We made some really good connections. We did really have some really good conversations, but it was incredibly dangerous because people want to assume that we don't have white supremacists like in the United States. No, baby, they are born and raised here. We have them. Um, we have Proud Boys. We have Soldiers of Odin. We have Canadian Combat Coalition. We have these things. Um, 
And so immediately I was first targeted by white supremacists and actual white supremacists, hate groups who wear the vest patches. I was stalked by them. I was doxxed by them. I was harassed by them online and offline. Um, And so this community discussion happened in Red Deer and days leading up to it, you know, we have people like Pat King making live videos showing like videos of somebody in the US, like chasing down an Antifa member, I put Antifa in quotations, I don't know if this can be on video or not. And um, then slapping this person around and Pat King saying, if you come into our communities, this is what's going to happen. For days leading up to us going there, there were death threats online, people going to shoot us, people going to run us over, they were making plans to show up, we already knew. Um, the main organizer of the event in Red Deer um, had contacted the RCMP and said, hey, we're holding this anti-racism event. Um, This is the threats we have. uh, So we're just letting you know this is what's going down. And um, obviously they didn't really respond to her. They didn't get back to her. We ended up like changing the location last minute to try and like deke them out. That did not work. We showed up and it was like a scene out of the 1930s in the South of America where we like in the distance, you could hear truck horns and yelling and like uh, the megaphones. And then you see the trucks flying up. They have their flags, American flags, Trump flags, Confederate flags, everybody coming up and they get, they park, they get out. And I have this video, um, of them parking and walking up and attacking like and within i don't know two minutes of them walking onto the grass we're standing they are already punching people and this you have rcmp right here and you have soldiers of odin with their vests right here and ain't nobody doing anything um a situation happened where um i had thrown a camera on a camera to break it because it was somebody who um has organized a lot of these anti-mask protests, all of these things. Um, he was actually, there's a video of him on City Hall in Calgary throwing Hail Hitler, Hitler salutes. And this man is here videoing me, trying to get in my face. I take his camera, throw it to break it. The camera hits him. Um, and then I'm charged with assault with a weapon. That was my first charge. But luckily, um, that charge was dropped. Um, and it wasn't until the next charges at... Um, our prolonged protest outside Calgary Course Center. We were out there for three weeks for Dahlia Coffee. Um, Constable Alex Dunn had violently arrested her, um, thrown her to the ground. Um, she has since passed away. And uh, he got a one month sentence, half of it to be at home and the other half on curfew. So uh, we decided to protest and it ended up with me receiving seven criminal charges. Um, that ended up with a five-day trial. My trial was supposed to be last week. Um, and then it got adjourned. It could not, the trial may not happen until spring of 2023. And um, last week, the day before that trial, I got another call from from my lawyer. Police had called them saying I was being charged with assault from another situation, a situation where I was assault. I was punched in the face by two different men. And the only person being charged with assault out of that situation is me. And even the friends I were with were attacked and assaulted. So like, it's constant. They time things like in, why this happened a month ago. Why are you calling me a day before my trial saying I'm going to be charged with something else and arrested? Um, So those are some things, but what happens in between that, you know, because I do a lot of boots on the ground work. So, when I'm downtown and I'm walking by and a cop walks by me or rides by me on their bike, 
a part of their intimidation tactics is to look at me and say, hey, Taylor, or hello, Miss McNally. I don't know about anybody else, but if you walk down the street and a cop walks by you and addresses you by your first and last name, I mean, does that happen to anybody else? Because I'm willing to bet no. Um, it doesn't, there, it doesn't intimidate me. It's just fucked up because we're not on a first name basis. Why are you talking to me this way? Um, my lawyer did get a FOIP request on me from our, our, uh, from Calgary police, um, dating 2020 to 2022. Um, so I got to see even within that, how much they're talking about me, how much they are monitoring me. Um, any situation where I've spoken with a cop is in this FOIP request. They report it right away. They ain't doing that with other people. Um, if you see a cop at a grocery store and say, hey, officer, they're not reporting back to Jimmy at the station. Um, one more situation where, you know, because I went and had to turn myself in for the new assault charges that I've just received. So I, that was yesterday. I went in. I sit down. Of course, they're trying to interrogate me all these things before I leave, they bring in the new hate crimes leader, a leader for Calgary police. His name is Matt Messenger, man from the UK. Um, and I like to point out this part because the previous hate crimes leader is also from the UK and Calgary police has really cl close ties to police forces and people and groups in the UK, um, which is really messed up. And uh, so they keep bringing in these dudes from the UK for the hate crimes uh, unit. Uh, the dude sitting in front of me, leader of the hate crimes, wearing a thin blue line pin, uh, which is interesting. You're a hate crimes leader and that's what you're choosing to do. OK. Um, and he was investigating me on uh, like anti-white rhetoric that was spray painted on garbage cans and like parking cement blocks saying like kill white babies stop having white babies like uh, kill white people kill white supremacists I was like are you like not that anybody has video or photo of me doing this but because people in this city who don't like me or the work I do have called into crime stoppers to tell them that they've either seen me doing it or that they think I'm doing it based on what I talk about online. And to them, what I talk about is online is hating white people because they can't seem to distinguish the difference between racism, and white supremacy, and just white people in general. So um, it's very interesting that, you know, this work has come to this. I don't want to say you know, interesting in a way that's shocking because when you are fighting the system this way, you're going to expect the system to fight back. Um, it's just really tiring when it's, you know, a handful of people really committed to doing this work because then we become targets even easier. Um, and uh, the system begins to win because we begin to get tired and either we get tired and burnt out where we stop or we die, whether that is by suicide or by murders. Um, you know, you ask about what measures I'm taking or how do I remain my safety? And um, which is a good question because I am scared all of the time. I have an alarm on my door. Um, I'm setting up cameras. I just got a dog. Um, there's a lot of th things I have to be careful where I go, who I'm going with, what time of day I'm going. Even if I'm sitting down somewhere, I will not put my back to anywhere I can't see behind me. I don't know what's going to roll up behind me because quite honestly, we don't know what these police are capable of. We have an idea. 
but we don't know for sure. We don't know what these white supremacists want to be planning. We have seen them attack people. We have seen them attack places of worship. We have seen them do all of these things. And I don't need to sit around trying to find out. <laughs> um, so, yeah, there's it's a lot of measures to be taken in safety. And um, do I feel safe with these things even? No, no, I don't. I don't ever feel safe. Even sitting here in my house, I don't feel safe. So, yeah a lot that was a lot to unpack i apologize <laughs> no please don't apologize um that is that is a lot and um i i'm grateful that people will get the chance to listen to everything you just said and I understand the limits of awareness and awareness politics and how that definitely has its limits. But at the same time, this is your your story and, and everything that happened to you is happening at the same time as um, Shannon Phillips, this NDP MLA who was harassed by police in Lethbridge, Duncan Kinney, who is harassed by police here and in Edmonton, and then we have a situation where Canada Land, which is a uh, Toronto-based publication, they do a lot of podcasts, independent media. They released a podcast episode with uh, Jesse Brown and Jeremy Appel talking about the Duncan Kinney situation. I haven't listened to the podcast yet, but you were featured in a small segment that touched on the protests that you made. And um, because I haven't listened, I can't comment on it too much, but I did see um, you had a lot of concerns with how that was framed. Did you want to maybe walk through what happened with that podcast episode and how that story is being covered and how your story is being covered? Yeah. Um, and it's interesting you say that or, or bring that up too, because I, what did I post that like a week ago now? And Canada Land just sent me an email yesterday, like, hey, we saw your concerns and we'd like to address them. If we did something wrong, let us know. And it's just like me just sitting here like wheels turning because it's like, again, it's so much to unpack that people, especially white people, just really don't understand or realize. So, you know, number one, where do I even start with that? Like, the situation with Duncan Kenny. Duncan Kenny is a white man in Edmonton. He is a reporter or journalist um, and a heavy police critic. Um, he does a lot of work. He highlights a lot of stories. I do not in any way want to diminish uh, the work that Duncan does because um, it is important work. That said, so many of the stories that we see and we read and we hear of are always focused from a white perspective and it's always focused on white people. So Duncan Kinney got um, charged with property damage, vandalism as well um, on some Nazi statue and immediately Twitter blows up 
everybody in support. White man in trouble, run to his aid. And it, it, you know, this happens too. Like when, when people see police brutality against white people or people see a white person being treated badly, unjustly by this system, immediately something sparks because they can see themselves now in this situation. And people don't like to get activated or involved in things until they um, relate to it in some way. Um, you know, even mm, there's a situation with Sean Shu, uh, police officer here in Calgary, um, who uh, he was a police officer. He molested a young woman, um, also uh, pulled a gun or something on his wife. And now he is a city councilor in our city. <laughs> and um, the person who was molested and assaulted by this man has come, she's made a, or they, I will not, not assume gender, they have made an anonymous Twitter account and have now been sharing their experiences, sharing screen. They'd be sharing some, uh, some deep, deep tea and everybody should be paying attention to this. At the same time, what we're now seeing in something like a uh, Break the Blue Wall of Science, Silence, which is a movement that white women that are current police officers or previous police officers are now coming forward with their stories, are coming forward with their support. Um, and it's just, at what point do Black people get that type of support? At what point are our plights, our struggles, our our assaults, our murders that have been happening for hundreds of years. At what point do we get that acknowledgement, that 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 show of support, whether if physically, financially, mentally, spiritually? When when do we get to be seen as human and have people be able to just amplify us in the way that we deserve? And I don't say these things to be like. Uh, you know, oh, I'm mad somebody else is being seen and not me because it's not number one. It's not about me. It's not about me. It is so much bigger than one person. Um, it's the way whiteness continues to be centered despite black people showing over and over again what has been happening to us and everybody fighting us like oh police aren't that bad but suddenly oh police rape somebody well yeah we've been telling you how fucking trash they are and y'all are still fighting us on defund y'all are still fighting us on abolition and nothing is being done until y'all are able to see yourselves in the situation like oh wait something's wrong here yes something's wrong here we've been telling you that we've been telling you and we still don't see that even you know my situation that happened yesterday I posted something and even <laughs> even the support on that compared to somebody like Duncan Kenny is very mild. Um, so Canada land does this, this uh, podcast and it is um, two white men and talking about the Duncan Kinney case and then talking about another situation that was also disgusting and how they handled that situation was disgusting. And in between that, they put in a one minute little excerpt or whatever of me and my situation. And um, 
what Jeremy had said was basically false anyway. Like you could obviously tell he has not been paying attention. He didn't talk to me about fucking anything. He just said whatever he thought was going on and like, hey, did my job tick in the box. And it's it just like, first off, don't put me on your podcast because your podcast is trash. Second, don't talk about me on your podcast, especially if you ain't got all the information and you do not care to reach out and have those conversations with me to begin with and be like, hey, is it okay if I do this? Hey, I'm going to say this. Is that okay? Hey, would you like to be on this podcast and talk about your situation yourself? God forbid we amplify the voices of black women. So yeah, again, it's a lot to unpack. So when I he I open this email from him and I'm just like, I got I ain't got the time to respond to this. <laughs> because it's gonna be more than just a little reply to an email. And then yeah. Yeah, I'll be the angry black woman or not using the right tone or God, fuck. <laughs> yeah, no, this uh, it's a lot to unpack. Um, and uh, yeah, very unfortunate situations. And um, I'm not I'm not necessarily sure where to to end this conversation because we've talked about so many different um so many different people, institutions, um like movements whether it's um the work that you do or people organizing against you um but um as ambiguous and as big as this question might be like what do you look forward to in the future what's 2023 going to to hold for you or um moving forward and i guess like what ways do you hope to like personally adapt or what ways do you hope um you know other people will adapt to create better um outcomes for these situations mm-hmm. uh yeah when i think of future i definitely don't think 2023 i think 2023 will be more of a disaster than 2022 and 2021 and 2020 um I think of the future and, you know, I do hope for some form of peace. I hope more people step up and remain committed to the work so that myself and others are able to, I don't know, take a week vacation, uh, relax a little bit. I really would love to start doing art again or, you know, start up tailor-made radio again. I would love to do these things and feel in a way that I can't. Um, for many reasons. A lot of it is also capacity. By the time I'm done doing everything else and fighting everything else, I'm tired. I want to go to sleep. I ain't got time, energy to do anything else. Um, And for adapting, you know, I, Black people have been adapting and molding to our surroundings forever. It's a form of survival. I don't want us to have to adapt anymore. I don't want us to have to mold anymore. I want us to be able to exist peacefully, joyfully, receiving love, giving love, just living our best fucking lives. We don't need to adapt anymore. Um, And I don't want to say that white people should have to adapt either. Maybe adapt to the reality that, yes, hello, we are no longer on the plantations anymore. We live out here and you need to learn how to live with us peacefully. Treat us with fucking respect. Provide us with love, caring, understanding, acceptance like you do everything else. Um, I don't know. Half of me always feels hopeful for our future that we are doing something and we're going to see change. And the other half of me is always just like, it it has to get worse before it gets better. And I think that's more the 
reality of the world and where we're in because history again has showed us over and over again that things have to get worse before they get better so i'm just here for the ride <laughs> and doing uh whatever i can to make my experience and those around me a little bit easier a little bit happier a little more joyful um and that's like you know that's that's all i can hope for personally yeah that's um that's a good place to end i'm just yeah this is probably the best conversation i've had at least definitely this season so far um and i don't want to throw shade on you know our previous guests of course um i love everybody but um yeah a lot of very important relatable um things that were uh, brought up is there anything that i missed that you want listeners to know or any where that people can follow you um on social media or otherwise if they want to hear more of your work or um, see what you're up to yeah um i definitely think instagram and twitter is the best places to follow me right now instagram is my favorite platform i think i might just get rid of facebook that's where i'm at with facebook um and uh yeah the way to support me right now uh personally is definitely financially with legal fees uh because the legal fees are not stopping they these charges are just going to keep piling up again i i right now i have 12 um so that's where i'm at and um you know collectively uh we will have all of our walls down collective uh, social media platforms fully out so when they are up in the world right now, just nothing is on them yet. We're waiting for our logo and stuff. Um, but wellsdowncollective at gmail.com if people want to support us in mutual aid work. Um, I also have a mutual aid page on Instagram where I try to distribute funds to different folks within so-called Canada. So obviously redistributing wealth is huge right now. Uh, we say money doesn't buy happiness, but it sure does, you know, help put roofs over people's heads and food on the table and clothes on their back. Um, so if you have the funds to do so, please contribute financially. Yeah. Just to repeat myself and, uh, not to throw any shade or disrepute onto any of our other guests, but I really enjoyed, uh, the interview that was done with Taylor. And I feel like a lot of the things that were said are not talked about enough and, um, this is the reality for a lot of black and indigenous communities that are challenging institutional norms that are trying to see some um, just some substantial some substantial change in um, in um, the justice system in policing. Um, the media kind of ignores it completely, basically. <laughs> it's like a black mm -hmm. hole um, and it's just a lot of silence. And it's interesting because they don't always ignore it. So you know that there is an understanding of what's happening. But then in, when it gets mentioned, like in the Candleland situation, it is done in a very, um, it's, it's, it's kind of put in a box or, yeah, completely ignored. Well, it's not ignored when it's happening to a white person, right? I think that's what that Candleland situation shows, right? Is yeah. that... It's, uh, it's ignored until a white person is able to be centered in that story. Then it becomes a real story because it's a real full human being going through this, right? So I think that's, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a big, obviously a big takeaway there um, is, uh, you know, white allies and the kind of 
unwillingness to actually acknowledge lived experiences in the community until it's them being centered. That is uh, very unfortunate, but it it just happens in so many different situations. And um, there's a lot of room for improvement when it comes to just acknowledging that fact that there only seems to be a reaction. There only seems to be uproar or um, condemnation. Yeah, when it happens to a white person. Um, And it can be the the exact same thing. Like another example that happened earlier this year was the, the, uh, I think it was Bell Media um, firing one of the reporters, Mm -hmm. ostracizing her for her age. Um, really sexist, very awful um, situation. But then um, a few weeks or a few months later, uh, a black woman in the same newsroom in Toronto opens up about her discrimination, about um, how her career was held back in um, different but similar ways. And it's 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 very sad to see how much smaller, um, how, how, how much... Um, how little room there is in the discourse um, or in public attention for the concerns, for the worries, for the problems that black and, you know, racialized people face, black and indigenous people, um, Mm -hmm. anyone who isn't white, basically. Well, and it's very revealing to the lack of understanding, even in a, you know, supposedly progressive a space like Canada land, the kind of lack of understanding there where, you know, Taylor said afterwards they reached out and it's that kind of familiar gesture of, well, what could we do? What could we do to fix this? Like, there's no demonstration of uh, empathy or understanding there. It's still like centered around like, oh, how can I fix this? I, I like wasn't aware. Just just tell me. Just tell me what to do and kind of putting the putting the work back on Taylor or back on the uh, like victimized person. Right. That's a situation that's obviously, you know, familiar for any any person from a marginalized community who's been uh, who's who's tried to bring up um, an experience of that marginalization impacting them uh, interpersonally. It's, it's a very accurate way to, to summarize uh, the situation. And um, I feel like it's very simple and basic, but uh, uh, the real kind of basic empathy of like, put yourself in a marginalized person's, person's shoes. Like if you are in like a progressive uh, political position or if you are in a progressive media organization or supposedly um, either or um, yeah just the simple exercise of what would my reaction be if I was Taylor <laughs> right or if I was in a situation of being you know black in Alberta and vocal against these systems with all of the other knowledge that you have, I think if these exercises are done, maybe the results will be different. Maybe the email sent will be different. Maybe um, the how narrative you, or the conversation yeah, how will you, be different. How right? you sequence like, your show, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> you your, your go-to, yeah. Oh, well, maybe we should give our maybe we should give our guests 
equal footing, or maybe maybe we don't need to downplay this uh, black victim's um, experience by giving it like five percent of the time of the previous white guests, right? And um, yeah, so there's yeah, there's definitely definitely a takeaway there for um, any any. Uh, I guess you could say allies um, out there or working in media um, just to, uh, yeah, avoid the urge to like center yourself in these, in these situations. Um, And I guess just uh, wanted to point out some ways that you can uh, support Taylor or keep up with her work. Um, So she's on Twitter at Taylor McNally. That's T-A-Y-L-O-R. M-C-N-A-L-L-I-E. You can also follow her on Instagram at TaylorMadeYYC or her mutual aid page that she runs called uh, Mutual Aid Canada. Um, So she does these things called Mutual Aid Mondays um, where basically if you want to just have an easy way to keep up to date with how you can send direct support to um, people who need it in the community, um, that's just a really great way to... uh, stay um, informed. So again, the theme of this episode is how institutions try to neutralize or um, I guess control um, and eliminate threats to their power through certain narratives. And a really good example of that we're seeing right now is through City Hall and what's happening with the budget process. So we can look forward to in the next month and also in the new year, to budget deliberations. So we're going to have public consultations happening in December, on December 1st, on the 2nd, on the 7th, on the 9th, and then most days of the week for December 12th, the week of December 12th. And city council is also meeting on December 5th officially. And then the budget, if everything goes according to plan, the budget might also be passed during a council session on January 31st. Um, so this is all to talk a little bit more about the way that council designs the public engagement process and how that process inherently is not very accessible and is very difficult for people to engage with. Um, so there's a few examples of that in this year's budget process. So again, this year, the police are the highest budget item in the city council uh, budget breakdown. But because line items have changed this year, certain uh, other line items or other city departments um, have either been swallowed into different categories or are completely different. So it makes it it makes it very difficult to actually understand how we've gotten to where we are now or how things maybe might be going in the future if everything in the budget line item wise is always subject to change. Well, yeah, as a member of the public, obviously, it's your money that's going to fund the various municipal services. So what you want to see is a breakdown of where that money is being spent. And over time, you want to understand is more money being allocated to things that I think need to be addressed more uh, more effectively? Is less money being spent on, uh, or is, is less of my money being spent on things that I don't actually think need to be addressed or that I think too much money has 
uh, gone into in the past. And basically, yeah, just this this way of reporting um, where basically they've got like a pie chart in, in each budget that breaks down where all the money is going. If the items in that pie chart are changing year to year, it really neutralizes the ability for anyone in the public to uh, easily digest and then criticize or comment on what is happening. How can anyone in the public know how they feel about how the uh, allocation of uh, money is being um, changed or updated going forward if they can't actually compare it to what uh, was happening previously? Yeah, I listed off all the dates earlier for when city council is having uh, budget consultation. And another thing that I think I definitely find, I found this out when I did some work or I went to the police commission a few times um, when they had the meetings online and also in person. The last Thursday of every month at noon, um, it's very difficult to block time off to actually speak uh, and it's very inconvenient for people who have issues with city council, with the budget process, with the police commission because of uh, the timing. Most regular normal people have nine to five jobs, right? So you can't take time off or doing so is, is very difficult. And there aren't almost any mechanisms to make sure that these um, consultations or um, when uh, the public is being asked to engage, um, there aren't many ways to, to change what's happening now with um, the scheduling. And um, this is apparent in one of the situations that city council decided to um, ban shisha indoor smoking um, in Edmonton. And now a reversal on that decision is being proposed. And in that reversal, the public is being told about how when the original decision was made, the only people who spoke in favor of the ban were consultants um, who worked with an advocacy group against smoking, against um, secondhand smoke and, and tobacco. So there are a lot of community members. There are a lot of African community members. There are a lot of Arab community members who um, who who ran businesses uh, around Shisha who use uh shisha but they didn't show up to city council nobody came to speak so um well because it was scheduled during the day exactly because it was scheduled during the day so yeah that that method of scheduling just um inherently tips the balance in favor of industry right or in favor of like you say consultancy groups anyone who's who actually has a daytime job to advocate for certain things. So inherently the community perspective is going to be underrepresented because the people who hold the community perspective are working during that time whereas the uh, industry perspective um, or the institutional perspective employs people to advocate for them during that time. No, that's that's literally what it is, and um, it makes it so that when community does show up, like for example, I think of the uh, taxi community when Uber and ride sharing was happening, huge turnout at City Hall in 2020 
um, after George Floyd was murdered. Large online turnout for city hall uh, meetings. But then that becomes a narrative that it's surprising when hundreds of people decide to talk to council. Yeah, it's surprising that public engagement actually happened because the system was designed to prevent it. Literally. (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, we were just talking about scheduling, right? But scheduling aside, there's also just risk or safety concerns about being in that kind of space and amongst that kind of power dynamic as someone from the community. Uh, You know, who is going to advocate for themselves um, amidst everyone who uh, holds power uh, in that system that's that's holding them down, right? Um, who's actually going to feel feel safe going into that space? Who who would hold that perspective? That's a great question. And speaking from my own personal experience, I don't. I I personally don't feel very comfortable, <clears throat> but I I know it's necessary. I know that it's important sometimes to physically show up and and participate but no there aren't a lot of steps to to make you (laughs) feel welcome or comfortable you got to go through like uh yeah a lot of security you know a lot of metal detectors um obviously city hall is very nice but um these are all deterrents these are all things that are just telling a large portion of the public that they aren't really wanted or welcomed or um very safe in those places, right? Um, yeah, and I guess just turning to uh, social media, it's been interesting seeing the the approach that the mayor's office is taking to, I guess, engaging the public on the uh, city budget. So Mayor Sohi has been putting out these videos where he says things like, Oh, did you know that your city tax dollars goes towards snow removal, rec centers, public transit, police, firefighters, and there's this kind of like implicit acknowledgement that police are controversial or harmful. Obviously, the mayor knows that um, there's a lot of dissatisfaction with police amongst the public. So he tries to frame the uh, city budget as only going towards the things that everyone's on board with that are more wholesome and less controversial. And then this framing is used in the service of basically setting it up to make the case for um, increasing tax dollars. Um, And obviously the city has committed to a lot of things um, like the uh, LRT, uh, an expensive new rec center in the West End, and they want to be able to stick to these commitments without decreasing the police budget. So by, by framing the city budget as kind of primarily going towards snow removal, rec center, uh, public transit, despite, as you said, uh, Omar, the police budget being the single biggest line item uh, year after year in the city budget, they want you to get on board as a taxpayer with the idea of paying more to support these more neutral, uh, wholesome services without thinking about um, the idea of taking some money from the police budget. 
it's it's the police. That's what we spend the most money on. So even if we spend millions, um, hundreds of millions on other things, framing it as if the police aren't first, it's just dishonest in, in a lot of ways. But um, I feel like it does also fit within um, changing narratives around what it means to be progressive and how that fits within also supporting police um, while not trying to make it seem like other services are being impacted. Well, yeah. And then at the end, they always say, you know, let us know what you want to see in the budget or let us know your thoughts on the budget. And it's kind of a similar thing to what you were talking about with Michael Jans uh, a couple episodes back where this idea of like putting it back on the community to let elected officials know in these specific um, forums what they want to see is almost a way of like avoiding accountability to the opinions that you already know are held by the public, right? The fact that they're trying to be quiet or downplay uh, how much money goes towards the police kind of shows that they already know that the public is unhappy with police, but then they try to frame it as like, oh yeah, let us let us know. It's a blank slate right now. If you don't let us know in these specific public consultation hearings, um, then uh, we're just going to make the decisions completely regardless of community input. So when um, people in the public or uh, someone on social media does try to let city council um, or the mayor's office know um, how they feel, if that engagement doesn't fit within the accepted parameters, uh, city council, the mayor's office is happy to remove it or just completely uh, disassociate from it um, in uh, a social media context. When we try to point out some of the um well it was the yeah basically the mayor's office was like um people were commenting uh that they were unhappy about the police budget and how many budget raises they've um gotten over the course of this year the mayor's office just responding with like oh we don't control the police budget that's the police commission um which is wrong of course the you know City Council does fund the police and they were responsible for raising the police budget four times this year. So yeah, we we, we posted something just calling out how uh, they shouldn't be deflecting to the police commission in order to evade accountability. And they removed the tag. Um, yeah, I thought we, it was... Yeah. tagged them in it and they, <laughs> they just removed it. It's yeah, I thought it was a mistake at first because we posted it and tagged them. And then I went to check the post later and the tag was gone. So then I retagged the mayor in it and then uh, checked the post a little bit later and that was gone as well. So they obviously saw it on both accounts and then actively removed the tag, which is really funny when you look at the kind of stuff that they do leave up on their socials. So we're in Edmonton and that means that the Oilers are a big part of the city's culture, Alberta culture, Canada culture, and the ice. Certain demographics. Exactly, right? Like sermon demographics. Got to point that out. So the ice district in Edmonton is a recent invention along with the uh, multi-billion dollar arena 
and it's been is it multi-billion dollars is it multi-billion i think it's a hundred couple hundred million at least um it's but if you include the stantec tower if you include mm. all of the other infrastructure the casino the marriott hotel um the new supermarket the loblaw city center there um it's been a force for gentrification in an area that really was um, home to a lot of homeless people. There were a lot of um, other businesses that were there before. Everything has been pushed out. Um, it's 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 a very wealthy, um, very gentrified area. So in the context of Oilers tickets that are hundreds of dollars um, and, you know, condos that are even more expensive the mayor was celebrating the ice district and um posing with a lot of um stakeholders uh casey madu from the provincial government the ucp uh, another friend of the show and um (laughs) good friend of the show show, yeah we commented um on the post because the mayor said that the ice district district is is helping edmonton has added a lot so, um, you know, we just asked, like, who is this helping? Um, I think the answer is um, self-explanatory. It's, it's helping a lot of people with very deep pockets, Oilers Investment Group, a lot of other people um, who have a lot of money. The comment was just removed. They just took the comment off of their post. Um, so, again, there are very specific parameters and then... We try to engage in different ways and it just gets removed. And we're not the only ones, of course. There are plenty of other people and a lot of other examples. But that was just super blatant and kind of funny almost. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a little bit petty. It's not like we actually care a, a ton, I guess. <laughs> no. But it is revealing about how they actually want to engage with real uh, opinions from the public or from the community. Um, I actually don't know if our comment was removed but at the very least it was marked as spam or hidden somehow Um, because i can see it when i look at uh, the post from our podcast account but when i tried to look at the post from just a personal account the comment doesn't show up and also comments on this post have been limited so i think you also need to be following uh, the mayor in order to comment on uh, any of the posts which is also petty but like just uh, another example of not really uh, walking the walk when it comes to being open to real opinions from the public and uh, wanting to hear from all Edmontonians. Yeah, going to the post right now um, from my personal account, I can't see the comment. It says it has uh, no comments. And that comments have been limited? Or are you following the mayor? Uh, I am not. I I am following the mayor and the comments haven't been limited. So I you have to be following in order to comment. Yeah, cool. So moving into some uh, media analysis, we are going to be checking out this article from Keith Guerin, who's a columnist with the Edmonton Journal. And he wrote an article, which is a retrospective uh, on the first year of Sohi's uh, time as mayor. And the headline reads, Sohi is a different Edmonton mayor for a different time, but is it working? Amarji has been connecting with people who haven't always had a voice in our political process, said Councillor Andrew Knack. 
Um, so Nicholas, we're going to take a few quotes. You're going to read them and then I'm going to say a few things. Yeah, totally. Yeah, we just we, we pulled out a few uh, quotes from this article and yeah, we're just going to we're just going to respond to them and um, see if we agree or uh, or something else maybe. So, yeah, Keith basically says that he thinks there are two photos that define uh, Amarjeet Sohi as a mayor. And um, here's what he says about the first photo. It is of Sohi in his private office at City Hall, sitting by a big, unmissable, multicolored mural of Edmonton landmarks and people from marginalized communities. The bottom of the mural features the words, and Edmonton for all of us, which was Sohi's best election slogan last fall when he cruised to a comfortable victory. At the time, some voters undoubtedly dismissed that as a piece of campaign lip service. But in Sohi's case, as the prominence of the mural indicates, it is the principle most foundational to why he chose to run for mayor. When he talks ad nauseum about collaboration and working together, it is this idea of broad inclusion that informs his governing style on nearly every issue that comes across his desk from policing and anti-racism initiatives to transit, climate, and business development. This is a commendable road to walk, but not an easy one. So he acknowledges such an approach can create discomfort for those with privilege, especially when assumptions are challenged about how equitably the city operates. Okay, Omar, what do we think about that? Real interesting, This uh, the attempt to frame uh, the picture uh, as the right but difficult road to walk is is striking because it assumes so he has been especially confrontational or ruffling feathers among people in power but i think the reality is that there's been a lot of lip service towards things that are more people centric so you could debate and i don't think that um there's a lot of populism in Edmonton for all of us as a slogan. Um, but when you look at the votes, council has basically raised the police budget four times in a single year. So they're about to decrease funding towards what they acknowledged as a climate emergency. And we mentioned before they are city council is pumping money into the ice district, which is a very large force for gentrification in downtown Edmonton. And I don't think you can say that there's been a lot of discomfort in people who have a lot of privilege. Um, and you could actually argue that people in power have been made more comfortable. Police, oil companies um, have been made more comfortable under Sohi's leadership as mayor. Um, so the media framing here is a little bit problematic in that sense because I feel like it tries to move the Overton window further to the right and towards the status quo while also painting a picture that Sohi's approach is somehow very progressive. Um, and I think the result is that it definitely softens the pressure on Sohi to be accountable to public opinion. Yeah, yeah, totally. And and you said there's been a lot of lip service uh, that's more people centric. I don't. I wouldn't even say that. I think a lot of council and Sohi's uh, rhetoric has been aimed towards like downplaying public opinion or dismissing public opinion and not even really giving lip service to it. Just more kind of like dismissing and a bit of gaslighting. And you know we saw that uh, 
throughout the year, every time they raised the police budget or decided to go back to the funding formula. So, so uh, yeah, moving on, um, Keith then starts to talk about the other photo that he thinks defines Sohi as mayor. And he says, the picture in question posted on Twitter in early October shows Sohi being driven around in the basket of Councillor Michael Jans's e-bicycle. For those who have felt unease with the mayor's leadership, the picture has a symbolic quality of how council dynamics have developed. It speaks to a belief that, over the first year at least, this has really become Jans's council and that Sohi has allowed himself to get sucked into that orbit. Whether you agree with Jans or not, he and fellow lefty councillor Anne Stevenson have been aggressively effective at setting much of the agenda and influencing public discourse, even if they don't win every vote. Likewise, while I think Sohi could be more decisive in keeping the agenda on track, he has been dealing with something Iveson never did. Eight eager council rookies who have needed to get up to speed on policy and procedure. Okay, what do we think about uh, Keith's take on this photo? The level that Keith is able to extract meaning out of the photo of Jan's writing Sohi in his basket as if this means that Sohi is progressive or trying to frame Sohi as much um, as a progressive or even a radical when in reality, like we said before, the status quo seems to only become further entrenched. Keith is making this criticism from Sohi's right. So the intent here is to see things move in a more rightward direction. Mm -hmm. And it's dangerous in a reality where we've already seen the police budget balloon. As difficult as it is to say, Michael Jans has no power in City Hall. And that's not a diss to him. That's not a um, untruthful thing to say. He is one vote among 12 other votes. And I feel like the narrative of this control or this influence um, that one or two votes on city council has um, over the mayor, over public discourse is very, very much so outsized um, and is made to, to be a bigger thing. Um, and that's being done regularly by the media, by fellow counselors and the police, which we saw the police going after Michael Jans to make it difficult for him to interact with what was called, you know, known critics in Edmonton. So portraying Jans' impact on council is controlling. Um, the takeaway is that he should be further silenced and dismissed if his outsized control um, of council is really happening um and the comment about eager rookies is really difficult because i feel like in the contrast between what so he has now and the council with don iverson before it makes it sound like this is a mistake and that there needs to be a reinforced status quo that um in this environment that has already been sticking to the status quo, we need to reinforce that even more. Um, and I don't understand why there needs to be a distinction between um, someone who's been on council for uh, 10 years, for example, uh, in previous councils with um, uh, Don Iverson as mayor, versus what's happening now um, with Sohi, other than to dismiss 
the concerns or the political interests of current counselors in order to, again, reinforce the status quo. Yeah, it reminds me of just how, you know, they were always saying this is the most progressive council ever. Like when when our current council has not materially been any more progressive um, than previous councils has been, you know, the same the same level of just centrist and conservative and entrenching the status quo, framing them as especially progressive only only serves to try and push them even more right when they are already just the same as what's what's come before. So this kind of perspective is just kind of almost arguing for like even further entrenching of the status quo when, yeah, like you said, that's already happening. Um, and then, yeah, Keith basically wraps up this article by framing it as a choice between the two photos, right? So he says, Sohi, I think, is sensitive to both halves of this reality, but I still don't have a great sense on how he plans to navigate it. That's probably forgivable for the first year, but the leadership he adopts in the coming weeks may go a long way to determining which picture better defines his legacy. So to reiterate what we said before, the media framing in this article tries to move the Overton window to the right. And it really positions the first picture as somehow correct and a way for us as Edmontonians to tell ourselves that we're being progressive and inclusive while we continue to entrench the status quo. And it really cautions against taking an approach that acknowledges in any way progressive voices on council. And that doesn't even mention or acknowledge the fact that it's very difficult to even get a progressive councillor elected in the first place. Yeah, totally. So, yeah, we just thought this was a really good example of how the media tries to define or eliminate like threats to the status quo and really just like controls that narrative and almost ends up defining public opinion for those in power um, in order to let them off the hook from being accountable to actual public opinion, right? If the media is supposed to represent that, uh, they're, they're really not, not doing a good job. Thank you for listening uh, to our episode today. And um, uh, thank you to Taylor also for coming on as a guest on our show. You can support the show on Patreon and you can find us on Instagram and Twitter as well. And our accounts are Is This For Real CA. Thank you for listening to the show.